0: A reading is taken from Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 4, verse 17, reading to chapter 5, verse 2. It's entitled Instructions for Christian Living. So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their, the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impunity, and they are full of greed. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him according, in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self which has been corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbour, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Amen.
1: Well, good morning. It's wonderful to be with you this morning. Um, Dave introduced me a little bit earlier. Um, My name's Amy. I work for the Oxford Centre for Christian Apologetics um, for a a global ministry, Ravi Zacharias Ministries. And um, our calling is to um, be involved in evangelism through apologetics around the world, trying to reach um, thinking skeptics and happy pagans with the gospel of Jesus Christ. The kind of motto of of our team is helping the thinker believe and the believer to think. And we've been here, um, a small team of us, this weekend, just yesterday, um, having this conference reboot, which was aimed at 12 to 18 year olds, um, taking their difficult questions about faith and life, God, um, can we trust the Bible today? Um, Has science disproved God? Um, what about sexuality all the questions around that facing young people today and we had a great crowd of of, um, youth it was a particular joy for me to pray with a a 12 year old who feels a calling to evangelism and apologetics and a desire to proclaim um, the word in their generation what a joy And so thank you to Dave for inviting me to come and speak this morning. And um, uh, we've got this passage before us in your series in Ephesians. And I want to begin um, by asking this question. Do you think it really matters to God what you think? Does what you think matter? Do our minds matter? The story is told of um, a grandmother living in the south in America, in Mississippi. And um, she was a witness in a trial. And uh, the lawyer who was prosecuting the trial, it was his first trial, so he was a little bit nervous. And he called this lady, this lovely grandmotherly, elderly lady, to the stand. And he approached her and he thought, I'm going to give her a really easy question, first of all, to get her settled and to get me settled. So he said, Mrs. Jones, do you know me? She responded, oh yes, Mr. Williams, I've known you since you were a boy and frankly you've been a big disappointment to me. (laughs) You lie, you cheat on your wife, you manipulate people, you talk about them behind their backs, you you think you're a big shot and you haven't the brains to realise that you'll never amount to anything more than a two-bit paper pusher. I know you. The lawyer was stunned and not quite knowing how to respond, he just pointed across the courtroom at the defence attorney and said do you know Mr. Bradley as well? She said, oh, yes, I've known Mr. Bradley since he was a youngster. He's lazy, bigoted, and he has a drinking problem. He can't build a normal relationship with anyone, and his law practice is one of the worst in the entire state. Not to mention that he cheated on his wife with three different women, and one of them was your wife. Yes, I know him. The defense lawyer, Mr. Bradley, nearly died. At this point, the judge asked both lawyers to approach the bench and in a very quiet voice said, if either of you idiots asks her if she knows me, I'll send you both to the electric chair. (laughs) What we think matters. And this passage before us, Paul... um, opens this section saying, so I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. In the futility of their thinking. Don't walk as unbelievers in futile thinking. Now what might that mean for us today? I think that could mean a number of things but I want to suggest three ways of futile thinking that we need to resist and that we're called to resist today. The first is the futile thinking that the material world is all that there is. The material world is all that there is, things that we can test, taste, touch. That's all there is. Only live for that. Now, it won't surprise you to know that it was the great Scott Hume who popularized materialism. The argument um, that Hume in in the 1700s put forward was that the natural world and that which is scientifically provable is all that we should trust and believe in. He argued that everything could be fitted into two categories, what he called either relations of ideas, and by that he meant sort of mathematical statements or definitions of things, so something like a circle is round or a bachelor is an unmarried man, or what he called matters of fact, things that could be tested and retested empirically. Now what that led to was the kind of idea that if you can't prove something, either mathematically or analytically, it's not just true by definition, bachelors are unmarried, or you can't prove it mathematically with a statement like um, an equation on on a whiteboard, or if you can't prove it repeatedly, scientifically in a laboratory, you shouldn't believe it. Now can we prove God with a mathematical statement? No. God exists. Is that a a statement that's true by definition like a circle is round? No. Can we prove God repeatedly in a scientific experiment in a laboratory? No. Therefore, don't believe it. Only believe in things you can prove materially. Hume said this, when we run over libraries persuaded of these principles, what havoc must we make? We take in our hand any volume of divinity or metaphysics, for example, and we ask, does it contain abstract reasoning concerning quantity or number? No. Does it contain experimental reasoning concerning matter-of-fact and existence? No. Commit it then to the flames, for it can contain nothing but sophistry and illusion." Now, there's an obvious problem with Hume's um, reasoning, which people have pointed out. And that's that his own philosophy is neither analytically or empirically verifiable. His own idea is not a round circle, it's not true by definition. Neither is it provable in a laboratory. But do we understand that as Christians? Do we realize that materialism collapses even as it is tested by its own standards? The material world is not all that is. Watch out. Watch out for the pressure in society, the pressure on the rising generation to disbelieve in God because you can't see him. My children are um, 11 years old. I have twins who are 11 years old and another one who's nine. This pressure to embrace materialism begins young. Um, A couple of years ago, the 11-year-olds were in the car with me. We were driving to um, a sports event. They're great tennis players. And we were discussing what had happened at school um, the previous week. And they said to me, oh, um, yes, Mommy, we we have this friend. And he was really mean to us this week. And he said, they said, um, he was saying to us all the time that only stupid people believe in things they can't see. You believe in God, you can't see him, therefore you must be stupid. The little twin in the back piped up, that guy is so mean because he knows we're Christians. And he was really attacking us. So I said, what did you say? They said, well, he said to us only stupid people believe in things they can't see. So we said to him, can you see our thoughts? I was quite surprised by that <laughs> and then the second twin piped up I said well what, what did he say to that he said well they said well he just kept trying to say well no 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 you can't prove God you can't see him therefore you must be stupid to believe in him so I said well, what did you say next he said oh mummy, don't worry we told our friend all about the fine-tuning of the universe and how the fundamental constants underpinning life are so finely tuned that they couldn't have come about by chance. The complexity of the universe points to a designer. The world itself is evidence for God. I was really encouraged, and I thanked the Lord for our youth worker at our church, who, because I hadn't told them about the fine-tuning argument. Who had um, who had taught them, equipped them to be ready to resist the futile thinking of materialism. Second dimension of materialism, um, this futile thinking, is to believe that because the material world is all that is, miracles or claims of God existing and intervening in the world are stupid. They go against reason. They go against evidence. Now, it's fascinating to me that C.S. Lewis took this idea on. He pointed out this. He said, If, on each of two nights, I put £10 into my bedside drawer, the laws of arithmetic tell me that I now have a total of £20. If, however, I'm waking up, I find only £5 in the drawer... I don't conclude that the laws of arithmetic have been broken, but possibly the laws of England. John Lennox, my colleague at the OCCA, puts it like this. He says, the laws of nature describe to us the regularities on which the universe normally runs. But God, who created the universe with those laws, is no more their prisoner than a thief is a prisoner of the laws of arithmetic. Like my room, the universe is not a closed system, as the secularist maintains. God can, if he wills, do something special, like a miracle, like raise Jesus from the dead. We could take this one step further. We could say, in fact, it's our knowledge of the laws of arithmetic that warn us that we've been robbed. And in the same way, it's our knowledge of the laws of nature that alert us to a miracle. We wouldn't be able to recognize a miracle, an intervention of God in reality, if we didn't know the laws of nature. And of course, when we do investigate the miracle claims of the Bible, like the resurrection of Jesus, they're substantially supported by evidence. A third dimension of materialism, this futile thinking is to believe that this world is all there is. And therefore, morality is purely subjective. The atheist philosopher Paul Kurtz puts it like this. He says, the central question about moral and ethical principles concerns their ontological foundation. If they're neither derived from God nor anchored in some transcendent ground, aren't they purely ephemeral? The brilliant atheist writer Jean-Paul Sartre put it like this, he says, the existentialist finds it extremely embarrassing that God does not exist, for there disappears with him all possibility of finding values in an intelligible heaven. There can no longer be any good a priori since there's no infinite and perfect consciousness to think it. It's nowhere written that the good exists, that one must be honest and not lie, since we are now upon a plane where there are only men. Sartre writes, Dostoevsky once wrote, if God did not exist, everything would be permitted. And that for existentialism is the starting point. Everything is indeed permitted if God does not exist. And man is as a consequence forlorn, for he cannot find anything to depend on, either within or outside of himself. For the Christian, the evidence is all around us and within us, pointing strongly to the conclusion that good and evil are real categories transcending human preference rooted in the mind of a a judge a moral lawgiver a transcendence reference point for morality in 1910 the times had run an article entitled what's wrong with the world and gk chesterton famously wrote the following reply dear sir regarding your article what's wrong with the world i am yours truly gk chesterton Paul tells us in this passage, don't walk as unbelievers in the futility of their thinking. The futile thinking of godlessness has an impact. You see, what starts in the mind leads to other outworkings. And we see this in verses 17 to 19, the futility of their thinking They're darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they've given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they're full of greed. If this world is all there is, if we subscribe to materialism, the next step that Ephesians warns us is that the body begins to be indulged, consuming other bodies and other things. If we live with a mindset that life has no transcendent value, that this is all there is, there is no judge, there is no ultimate accountability, I live to consume. I consume people and things for the short-term thrill of it. And don't we see this lived out in our society? As people have turned away from God, so we turn to the consumption of people and things, the sexual consumption of others. So that instead of sex as a gift of God given for marriage, where we're committed to one another for life, sex becomes one person consuming another and then disposing of them, throwing them away. Perhaps we live for the acquisition, the consumption of more and more things, because I believe those things will make me happy, they will give me status. And here this word greed, perhaps related to money or food, we consume what we think materially will make us happy. All of that, according to Ephesians, is a consequence of futile thinking. But doesn't that accurately describe our culture? The lie that running after material things will satisfy us and make us happy. And here we're challenged As believers, Paul challenges and shows us that that is not how believers in Jesus, how followers of Jesus are to live. Verse 20, that is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in Him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. The truth is Jesus. The truth is not materialism. The futile thinking of materialism that leads to consumerism, that leads to greed, that leads to all of these other ways of of life that we see decaying our society is not the truth of Jesus. The truth of Jesus that we're told about this teaching that they'd received and that we've received means that we put off our old self and put on a new self, a new attitude of mind will lead to something just as materialism leads to something. The Jesus way of thinking, though, leads to something different. It doesn't lead to consuming others. It doesn't lead to greed. It leads to righteousness and holiness. And in verses 21 to 24, we're given an insight into what specifically that looks like. In verse 26 and verse 31, we're told that this this Jesus attitude, this Jesus truth will impact, it will lead to something in our lives. It will impact, firstly, our speech. Our speech will be truthful And our speech won't be characterised by anger. Later on in verse 31, he talks about no bitterness, no rage, no anger, no brawling, no slander. Our speech is impacted. Secondly, our work will be impacted. We won't steal things, but we'll work hard and we'll be useful and we'll be productive And instead of stealing, we'll become people who share what we have. That's in verse 28. And thirdly, this Jesus mindset, this truth, will impact our outlook and our output. So we won't tear people down, verse 29, we'll encourage them. So don't walk as unbelievers in the futility of their thinking. That's the first point. And then we come on to the second point that I want to make this morning. Walk as believers. Walk as believers. Verse 1 of chapter 5 Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children. And live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Don't walk in the futility of that kind of thinking. Walk as believers. Be kind. Be compassionate to one another. Forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. There are sort of two elements to what this looks like that be kind and compassionate and forgiving, just as Christ is to you, and walk in the way of love, agape, just as Christ loved you. All of it, though, is rooted in the truth about Jesus. And ultimately in his cross, it's because of his cross that we can know that we're dearly loved, that he's loved us, that he's sacrificed for us, that he's bought us at a price. The truth of the cross and God's passion and love for us revealed at the cross is the foundation of walking as believers. It begins by knowing we're loved. John Stott, in his brilliant book, The Cross of Christ, wrote this. He said, I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. The only God I believe in is the one Nietzsche ridiculed as God on the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to it? He goes on, I've entered many Buddhist temples in different Asian countries and stood respectfully before the statue of the Buddha. His legs crossed, arms folded, eyes closed, the ghost of a smile playing around his mouth, a remote look on his face, detached from the agonies of the world. But each time, after a while, I've had to turn away, and in imagination, I've turned instead to that lonely, twisted tortured figure on the cross, nails through hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from thorn pricks, mouth dry, intolerably thirsty, plunged into God-forsaken darkness. That is the God for me. He laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood, tears And death, he suffered for us. Walking as believers begins with knowing God's love demonstrated in Christ's cross. Not a sort of master figure in the sky who says, Okay, if you want to be in my family here are these moral hurdles that you need to leap over in order to make yourself lovable by me and acceptable to me. Not a kind of moral equivalent of Facebook photo editing, where we present the best side of ourselves in any photograph that is going to go on social media, and we rigorously edit images that appear of us. Not a moral equivalent of that where we need to put our good person face on in order to be lovable by God. But God on the cross plunged into darkness for us. So great is his love for the real us that he's able to forgive us taking our sin upon himself. Walk in the way of love because you know you're loved walk in the way of love because you're not in the futility of thinking this material world is all there is walk in the way of love because God who is love came for you my boss is a um, uh, amazing evangelist called Ravi Zacharias and in the 1970s, he was involved um, in amazing evangelistic endeavors in Vietnam and Cambodia. And while he was there, his translator was a man called Hien Pam. Hien was a, a, a brilliant young Christian in his 20s, and he traveled the length and breadth of, of these countries with Ravi, um, helping preach the gospel. And after Ravi um, left, Vietnam um, fell and Hien was imprisoned and Ravi had no idea what happened to him. But 17 years later, he received a telephone call and he immediately recognized his friend's voice. And this is what Ravi writes, shortly after Vietnam fell, Hien was imprisoned on accusations of helping the Americans. His jailers tried to indoctrinate him against democratic ideals and the Christian faith, and he was forced to read only communist propaganda in French or Vietnamese. The daily deluge of Marx and Engels began to take its toll. Maybe he thought, I've been lied to. Maybe God does not exist. Maybe the West has deceived me. So Hien determined that when he awakened the next day, he wouldn't ever pray again or think about his faith. The next morning, he was assigned the dreaded chore of cleaning the prison latrines. As he cleaned out a tin can overflowing with toilet paper, his eye caught what seemed to be English printed on a piece of paper. He grabbed it, washed it off, and after his cellmates had retired for the night, he retrieved the paper and he read the words, Romans chapter 8. Trembling, he began to read, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. I'm convinced that neither death nor life, angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He wept. He knew his Bible, and he knew that there was not a more relevant passage for someone on the verge of giving up. He cried out to God, asking for forgiveness. This was to have been the first day that he wouldn't pray, but evidently God had other plans. As it was, there was an official in the camp who was using the Bible as toilet paper. And so Hien asked that commander if he could clean the latrines regularly, and every day he picked up a portion of scripture, (laughs) cleaned it off, and added it to his collection of nightly reading. The day came through an equally providential set of circumstances that he was released from prison. He began to make plans to leave the country and to construct a boat for the escape of him and 53 other Christians. All was going to plan until the day before their departure, four Viet Cong knocked on Hien's door. They said they'd heard about his escape, but he denied it and they left. He felt relieved, but at the same time he felt disappointed in himself, and he made a promise to God, fervently hoping God would not take him up on it, that if the Viet Cong returned, he would tell them the truth. He was absolutely shaken when only a few hours before they were to set sail, the four men returned. When questioned again, Hien confessed the truth, and to his astonishment, the men leaned forward and, in hushed tones, asked if they could come along too. <laughs> in an escape, amazing escape plan, all fifty-seven of them found themselves on the high or fifty-eight of them, sorry—found themselves on the high seas, suddenly engulfed by a violent storm. Hien cried out to God, "Did you bring us here to die?" But then he said to me, Brother Ravi, if it were not for the sailing ability of those four Viet Cong, we would never have made it. <laughs> and they arrived safely in Thailand. He now lives in America. Nothing will ever be able to separate us from the love of Christ rooted in the cross As in Christ, God forgave you. Follow his example as dearly loved children. Live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. As beloved children, don't be tempted into futile thinking that leads nowhere. It leads to death. However intelligent it sounds, all of that reasoning collapses Don't think in futile ways. Follow as believers the one who gave his life for you and live a life of love, motivated by love, underpinned by love, held by love. Because of Christ's love for you, shown, demonstrated, evidenced in the cross. And lastly, that leads to kindness. I'm going to finish with this. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other. What practically does that look like? What would it look like to be part of Christ's church characterized by compassion, forgiveness, kindness? One of my favorite writers is an apologist called Dorothy L. Sayers. And she was writing in the 1940s um, as an apologist, as a, as a witness to Christ in her generation. And one point that she makes, which I'm going to leave you with, is the particular kindness that the Lord Jesus showed to women. And she wanted to, um, to share this with people in her generation who had this perception of religion, very negative perception of religion. But this is what she wrote about Jesus. And I'm going to finish with this as an encouragement to us to kindness. She said, Perhaps it is no wonder that the women were first at the cradle and last at the cross. They had never known a man like this man. And there never has been such another. A prophet and teacher who never nagged at them, never flattered or coaxed or patronized, who never made arch jokes about them and never treated at them as the women, God help us, or the ladies, God bless them. Who rebuked without querulousness and praised without condescension, who took their arguments and questions seriously who never mapped out their sphere for them, never urged them to be feminine or jeered them for being female, who had no axe to grind and no uneasy male dignity to defend, who took them as he found them and was completely unselfconscious. There is no act, no sermon, no parable in the whole gospel that borrows its pungency from female perversity. Nobody could ever guess from the words of Jesus that there was anything funny about a woman's nature. Perhaps then it is no wonder that they were first at the cradle and last at the cross. Very simple point about the kindness of Jesus in contrast to the culture that they lived in. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Don't be caught in the futile ways of thinking. Don't walk in those futile ways. Walk as believers, beloved by God, and bear the family resemblance, kindness,
0: compassion, forgiveness, love. Amen.